from the heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to season six of the Wine Crush podcast. Stories uncorked for wine enthusiasts around the world. Featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley and beyond. From origin stories to terroir, here's your host, Heidi Moore. Hey, everybody. It is time for Wine Crush Podcast. We are here with Season 6, Episode 5, and we are here with James Fry of Trisadum Winery. But we are also talking a little bit about something very special today that we have not talked about in six seasons, spirits. So that's going to be exciting, but we're going to wait till the very end. So this is like your teaser for you to stick around and really listen to the whole show. James and I have known each other for, gosh, 20 years, maybe. yeah. Yeah, it's crazy how long we've known each other, but then we never see each other really hardly at all. So, you know, so this has really been great to really get up to the winery, have some wine, see your new adventures, what you guys are up to, and and now have you on the show. Well, so, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me, Heidi. Well, thank you for saying yes. So that's always, <laughs> that's always step one my, for the thank you. My pleasure. Yes. As much as we've kind of chit-chatted over the years, and especially here lately, the last couple of weeks about stuff, I don't know if I really fully know why you decided to jump into this venture to begin with, because you've got a lot going, not only the wine and the spirits, but you've got the vineyard and you've got other stuff. So floor's coming back over to you and let's start kind of where you started and why. Yeah. My wine journey started with a snowstorm. So I didn't grow up with wine. We didn't have wine on the table at dinner at night. But when um, my wife, Andrea and I, when we got married, we had just finished grad school. We were heavily in debt, so we didn't have any money. So we couldn't really afford a traditional wedding or a traditional honeymoon. So we eloped and we were going to go camping in Yosemite. That was our honeymoon. Um, And so that was our plan. We get outside of Yosemite and a snowstorm had closed the park. So our whole grand plan of honeymooning on the cheap by just having a tent and camping in Yosemite was not going to happen. But we had a week off from work, so we were kind of close to the Bay Area. And so on a whim, we literally said, why don't we drive to Napa and we'll try some wine? Neither of us really drank wine and we didn't grow up with it. That was it. We spent a week going to wineries and walking through vineyards and we got hooked. So again, uh, we were just starting out. So there were no first growth Bordeaux on the table. It was, you know, what you could find at the local store. And and we just over time realized that we loved Pinot Noir and we loved Riesling. And those became um, the wines that we just gravitated towards. So a few years later, I decided to plant a vineyard in my backyard. I had a one acre piece of land in Southern California, not meant for grapes. Um, Typically Southern California not meant is for, not you know, really <laughs> grape country. Meant for a dead ice plant at the time. And so I took all that out. And I put a vineyard in and started growing grapes. And that that's kind of how it started. That was the beginning. So the million-dollar question is, how did your vineyard in Southern California actually grow? Yeah, not, not really well. <laughs> um, it, I mean, it's still there. But I learned a lot, even just from putting a, a little acre. And that was my first winemaking experience was taking those grapes. And at that time, our children were three years old and two years old. And so it was fun to, you know, get out there and do some stuff. Um, but that just kind of further increased that desire to maybe do this as a career. And so 
That came uh, a few years later after we had graduated and we were getting introduced to wine. Andrew and I had a business career and started to pay off all the debt that we had accrued, you know, putting ourselves through college. And we started kind of dreaming, all right, where, when our kids get to, you know, grade school, where do we want to be settled? We want to be someplace. And then I was also working and not home for dinner. And we just agreed that I wanted to be around, you know, for dinner every night. And so all of those things coalesced to Oregon, a place that we both had spent some time in. So both before we knew each other, we loved Oregon, we loved Pinot Noir, we loved Riesling. And so it was literally, you talked about us knowing each other about 20 years. It was 20 years ago this month that we bought a little piece of land here in McMinnville, this old cattle ranch up in the hills. It's in the Coast Range Mountains. I don't know how cows ever walked. It's very steep. It's about 400 feet of elevation from top to bottom. But we started clearing that land and planted a vineyard, and I got to be home every night for dinner. And that's how Trisadum started. I had no idea that you guys were that new when I had originally met you. And it's probably, see, I've been where I'm at for almost 15 years. So it was probably about 17 years ago, I guess, when we originally met and kind of were working together a little bit on the business side. So yeah, I didn't realize, you know, and actually at the time I didn't understand the wine industry at all. I mean, I think Andrea brought me in a bottle of Riesling, you know, at one point in time. And I'm like, I'm like, I don't even know what to do with this. I think it literally sat on my counter and then in my refrigerator for I don't know how long. And we did finally drink it and it was amazing and delicious. But it's funny kind of looking back that far and seeing, well, how many things have changed, but how far I've come even in my appreciation and a little bit of knowledge about wine now. So right. it's, and yeah, and looking back for ourselves, uh, thinking how much we knew going into it and how much in Hindsight, we absolutely did not know. And, yeah. and you know, the wonderful thing about Oregon is it's such a collaborative wine community. You know, I, I didn't go to wine school and I didn't go to vineyard school. So I was going to have to learn this on my own. And what's great about Oregon is there's just the people in this industry are so giving of their time and their energy and their passion with you that you are able to make a go of it, even if you didn't have necessarily the, the formal training that a lot of winemakers might come at this with. And it's it's so great to hear that from 20 years ago and 30 years ago, and it's still true to this day, which is, it's really great that the industry has really kept that spirit alive, which I think is really what's, for me, is just so endearing about it and what makes you love it that much more. Yes, the wine's great. And yes, the people are super cool and they do cool stuff, but they also are cool to each other and help each other and, you know, I guess, love each other in, in the same respect right. and want to see everybody succeed. So. Yeah. That is not very common in the world, especially right now. Not in a lot of competitive industries. I mm -hmm. can't think of really any that are as collaborative and open-armed about helping each other be successful. And I, I still think, you know, Oregon's obviously had a lot of success over the years and a lot more success in the last 20 years, you know. But it's still a rising tide lifts all boats kind of place where if one of us does well, everyone's doing well. We're not so big and there's not so competitive that there's plenty of room for everyone to be successful. And I think that's really engendered this collaboration and sharing of knowledge and sharing of, of winemaking techniques and sharing of business techniques and joining together with things like Oregon Pinot Camp or IPNC that brings people here. And that's just a collaboration of, of a lot of wineries getting together and figuring out a way to make it happen. No, for sure. It's funny. Uh, I mean, when you mentioned like IPNC and Pinot Camp and stuff, that 
not everybody knows what that is, um, but it is something you should absolutely look up if you don't know. I mean, if you don't really believe what the collaboration of Oregon is and the Oregon winemakers together, that's really a great thing to look at, look up, and even become part of if you have the opportunity to just see how very, very true this is. So I I love it. I think it's a cool thing. It it makes you just kind of, you know, embrace everything that's going on here that much more. And and there is so much, I call it noise, but it's not, it's not noise in a bad sense, but there's so many wineries and so many, you know, there's those that have been doing it, those that have done it, but then there's so many that are inspired to come in and start their own thing. And for the senior leaders, so to speak, or the legends or whatever, to be able to willing to stop what they're doing and help those newbies, ask questions, show them the techniques is just, it's, yeah. No, 100%. I think the pioneers of the Oregon wine industry that were, you know, here 50 and 60 years ago, they bootstrapped it, they did it on their own, but they kept that spirit all the way through. and, And that kind of, I've figured out this, so let me show you how to do it. And that kind of environment and culture is still very much part of the Oregon wine industry, which is great because now you've had, now you're into second generations or even close to third generations. And you've got a lot of young folks starting out that are starting wineries and, and they bring a new energy and a new way of looking things. And you've got the folks that have been doing it the way they've been doing it for a long time. And, and they all work really well together. I, I, and I think that's, I think that's important. I think you need to have the traditions and then you need to always have new blood coming into an industry. Absolutely. Well, let's shift over a little bit to wine. You have a couple different sites that you have your home site, which has your home vineyard, which is in the Coast Range outside of McMinnville. And then you have your tasting room, which is on Ribbon Ridge outside of Newburgh. And so not everybody is growing and embracing Riesling. You know, Pinot's the king of the county, so to speak. And and so you're doing a lot of Pinot, obviously. But the first thing we talked about when I saw you a couple of weeks ago was Riesling. And I love Riesling. It is n- not a secret anymore that I love Riesling. I used to be afraid and embarrassed to tell people that I liked white wine because only beginners liked white wine. And that's so not the truth. So why Riesling? Yeah. You know, I like to joke my father's side. My family is from Alsace. And so I'm assuming there's Riesling in my DNA, although they weren't winemakers when they came, when they immigrated to the U.S. So, but there's something about the the brightness and the life of a Riesling, the flexibility of Riesling that goes with so many foods and you can have it by itself as an aperitif. You can have it with your food. You can have it as a dessert wine. So it was just something that my wife and I just loved drinking right from the beginning. And I find myself going back to it more and more. It's one of those things as your palate develops and yeah, maybe you start with white wines and move to red wines and your palate developed some more. And now I spend a lot of my time drinking white wines and I've been doing this for a long time. But when we started, you know, there weren't a lot of people making more than one Riesling. So there were folks making Riesling. Riesling was one of the first grapes planted in the Willamette Valley. Obviously, Pinot Noir has its rightful place and it should. But when we started, there was really, you know, Shehalem, Harry Peterson Nedry and Wynn Peterson Nedry were making wonderful multiple site Rieslings at Shehalem and then Brooks and Janie Brooks and Chris Williams at Brooks, they'd make amazing Rieslings and they were doing a lot of single vineyards. And so those were both kind of examples of what you could do in Oregon. And there weren't a lot of those examples, but I had a lot of folks tell me not to plant Riesling that, you know, if we wanted something easy to sell, plant Pinot Gris. 
if you wanted to be adventurous, plant Chardonnay. So this was in 2003, 2004, right? So 20 years ago. But by all accounts, don't plant Riesling. Um, and I said, you know, we're doing this because we want to do it. We're doing it because we're passionate about doing this. And so we're going to plant the stuff that we want to grow. And so we planted Riesling um, against all of the the advice that that we were given. And it's just something we love doing. And so now, yeah, we make about nine different Rieslings a year. And they're all state fruit. So they're coming from our, our three vineyards. Riesling is such a wonderfully transparent grape. Just like Pinot Noir is on the red wine world, Pinot Noir does this amazing job of taking the place and putting it in the glass. I think Riesling, I think, owns that spot in the white wine world for me. And it uh, it just does this amazing job of taking the volcanic soils of my Dundee site or the marine sediments of my Ribbon Ridge site and somehow taking those and putting them inside the glass. And so we do dry styles of Riesling, we do uh, medium dry styles of Riesling, and we do a dessert Riesling as well. And so uh, it's been great for us. It was one of those things that a lot of folks said we probably shouldn't do. Now, basically, our, our entire Riesling program is allocated to our, we have a very large Riesling club and we've had two Rieslings in the White House. And That's not that, a bad place it's to not, showcase. Yeah, so it's been... You know, uh, not to, it, it's, it feels good if there's some validation that, it's, you know, it maybe, is okay to maybe, toot your horn. Okay. Maybe, yes. okay. Maybe yeah. it, not planning Pinot Gris was an okay thing to do back in, in 2003. So, so anyway, we love it. We, I love making it and it's just a lot of fun. You know, it's kind of interesting that you said, you know, how a palate changes and it morphs and it matures. You know, I always thought that white wine was a starter wine, which I think for a lot of people, it is the foot in the door because it can be sweet. It's super aromatic. So it smells great. And I was told because I did not like red wine at all, especially when I worked at the bank, I had somebody tell me that I wasn't old enough. My taste buds had not died yet enough to where I could appreciate red wine. And I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't know that was a thing, but okay, that makes sense. And so I've gone from white wine to red wine, thinking that red wine was what serious wine drinkers drink. And they do. But as I've done this more and more and between the podcast and business and whatever, I'm drifting back to white wine, not all the time because I love them both. But there's so much complexity in a white wine that I don't think people really realize. Right. With red wines, they sometimes take quite a bit of time in the bottle to unwind and for the tannins to integrate. And, you know, sometimes you just don't have access to those bottles or you don't have access to a cellar where you can lay things down for a decade before you start opening them. And, and But white wines are usually a little bit more accessible in their youth. A lot of wonderful white wines like Riesling and like Chardonnay, they can they can age beautifully. And so you don't have to drink them young. You can drink them young because you don't necessarily have the tannin problem of of taking time for those to integrate in the wine. So, yeah, I think white wines and especially in Oregon, I mean, again, or, Pinot Noir is king for a reason because it really grows wonderfully here. But so does Riesling and, and so does Chardonnay. And, and Chardonnay has its rightful place as well here in Oregon. And, and there's some just exciting, exciting white wines being made. I think in the beginning, you made white wines to have something to sell in your tasting room or to sell while your red wines were aging in barrel. Nowadays, people are making white wines to rival their Pinot Noir. And I think that's an exciting next step of where Oregon's going. And, and I think some of the, the Chardonnays, and I'm 100% biased on Riesling, but I think some <laughs> of the Rieslings, well, we've had two Rieslings in the White House. I mean, there are Rieslings that coming out of Oregon that deserve that pedestal. So I think that's exciting because I think a lot of winemakers in Oregon are now as equally 
passionate and excited about making their white wines and making them not just because it's a quick sell, but making them to age and to, in fact, some folks are bottling their Chardonnays after they bottle their Pinot Noir. So their Elevage is longer than with their red wines. And that's a lot of investment. That's a lot of time, but I think the wines speak for themselves. Yeah. And it's kind of going back to like, you know, your original recommendation as far as planting Pinot Gris, you're seeing a lot of Pinot Gris being pulled out now or grafted over by something else, which is too bad. I think Pinot Gris has its place too. Absolutely. Yeah. So right. I, I mean, don't mean to denigrate Pinot Gris no, in, in not the conversation. A, no, not right. at all. I mean, that right. that wasn't, yeah, that wasn't right. where I took that. And I hope nobody else did yeah. either. But it's just as things kind of come in and out of fashion and in and out of flow and climate change and right. taste buds and, you know, whatever's, you know, trending, I guess at the same time depends on kind of where where things go. Right. Exactly. Yes. I think that's so, exactly right. And, yeah. and yet there are folks making some amazing Pinot Gris here in Oregon oh, totally as well. Oh, totally agree. Right? We've had some amazing so, Pinot Gris. Right. Here. And I think there's room for, Oregon has a nice diverse climate. I mean, it's a cool climate. So, you, you know, you're going to want to grow more cool climate varietals, but I think there's room to grow other things here. And I think there's places to still go, even in the Willamette Valley. You can if you want to be cooler, you just go farther up into the Coast Range Mountains. You just go higher and higher or farther in. And, you know, it's funny. When we bought that site 20 years ago, the other advice that we got was we were way too far west. Nothing would ever ripen. Yeah. And it's still the western boundary of the Yamhill Carlton ABA. So it's still as far west as you can go in the Yamhill Carlton ABA. But um, now we've got a lot of vineyards that are farther west in here in the Willamette Valley. And I think there's wonderful opportunities to plant new vineyards and even new varietals in different parts of the valley. Yeah, there's several that are up past your house. In fact, I was just there last weekend to one of them, and it was great. And a lot of times, you know, not a lot of times, but sometimes, you know, with the white wines, you do get almost more of that ocean-type flavoring and exposure, I guess, so to speak, because of the winds coming up over the mountains. So it's just a completely different dichotomy over right. there, which right. is actually pretty cool. So. It's time to pour Riesling in my glass now that we've had um, <laughs> this long Riesling talk. But we are, I've been kind of making fun of you since you've been here because we've started it the European way and we started with the Pinot and then we're going backwards to the white, which is not traditional. It's usually you start with the whites and go red. Right. That tradition is a very American tradition of starting with whites and going to red. And that can work just fine. Um, a lot of folks will start the meal with a white wine and then they'll have the red wine with the main course. What we like and what I like to pour, and I found this when I was visiting Europe a lot, was that a lot of folks would start with their reds and move to their whites. And certainly with Riesling, I think it makes a lot of sense because Riesling, because it has so much acidity and so much brightness, there's often a little tiny bit of RS, a little bit of residual sweetness or residual sugar in it. And even if it's a tiny, small amount where it's not really perceptible, it is coming off of a really dry, or if you start with that and then you go to a very dry red wine, it can often just be a little bit, makes the red wine a little bit jarring. And so, yeah, I love tasting wines basically red to white and from drier to sweeter. So the Pinot Noir would be the driest. The dry Riesling, even though it's a dry Riesling, still has 0.2% residual sweetness. And then the off-dry Riesling that we brought here has, you know, 4.5%. So it makes sense to kind of taste from dry to sweet. Yeah, no, I love it. Yeah, and I love the reasoning behind it. So, yep, perfect. Pour it up. As everybody scoots their glass across the table. A lot of Riesling fans in this office, for sure. So the wine that I just poured is is, a, so is a dry style of Riesling and purposely dry. 
And what's great is that I can make the same vineyard. I can make a, a medium dry, which has some sweetness to it. But for me, if I was on a desert island, yeah, a dry Riesling is probably what I would have. Have you been listening to my old podcast? Because that's no, usually, is that, a question? That, is, that is usually the used to be the question oh, at the end. Yeah. You can take one celebrity and one wine with you. Where are you going? What are you taking? Oh, so, wow, that's a that's nice, a, that's, nice that's, work. Yes, well, you know, I'm assuming it's see desert island. The white wine would work well with the fish. If I was, <laughs> you're the first one right, that's given a reason I, for it too. Yeah, <laughs> we we tend to overanalyze everything at Trisadum. <laughs> Um, yeah. So then if I was like a North Pole, like second North Pole, you know, I'd, I'd, probably, I'd probably take whiskey. You need not, that heat. But probably not. A, yeah. Maybe yeah. not a dry Riesling to the North Pole. So it's just um, dry Riesling. They're aromatic, right? They're beautifully aromatic. But then they have this life and this energy to them that uh, that I think is really exciting. And you can have the wine by itself, but I really think dry Riesling is just meant for food and it's meant for seafood or pasta dishes, especially with a white sauce. And so anyway, that's why, you know. Yeah. Well, that was it. Yeah. This is absolutely delicious. It was a great, again, another explanation that was great. And, but okay. So now that we've touched on the desert Island and I don't ask that question anymore, who's your celebrity that you're going to share oh, your Riesling with? I don't even know. That's oh, a James, great, you're, that's you're a, totally disappointing I, me I, right I, now. And you, I, yes. I think I'm by myself on the island. Um, I have to let me think about it. And by the end, I will, okay. I will have a and you celebrity. can't take Andrea. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, she's a celebrity to me. So, well, that's a, another I, great answer. Okay. He deserves a little bit of a checkmark <laughs> point there, Andrea, <laughs> for, for his sweetness. Okay, so we've talked the life out of Riesling, or we've really talked it up anyways and really talked a lot about it. But, but let's talk and switch gears and go over to the Pinot because, again, Pinot is king. It's what the Willamette Valley is known for. There's so many different types of clones, and there's a lot of different styles of making of Pinot. And I'm not sure what one that you brought, but we started with that, obviously. And it's very dark. It's a beautiful, beautiful color, but still very fresh and fruit forward, which is my favorite kind of Pinot. Thank you. Yeah, so that uh, the Pinot Noir was from our Coast Range site, which is the wildest of our three vineyards because it's pretty isolated. It's out there on the foothills of the Coast Range Mountains. Our farming practice, we dry farm. So we're part of the Deep Roots Coalition here in Oregon, which is about 25 or 30 wineries that all have that same philosophy of not irrigating their vineyards and dry farming. And and you know, we think there are lots of benefits, both to the wines and to the environment from that. But there are risks with that, too. The one site that we never have a problem with is the Coast Range because it just has enough water. It gets enough rain. It has enough water holding capacity in the soil. But it's also just really what we don't, um, we don't irrigate, we don't till. So we just let whatever's growing grow. And I think that really works well on that site because there's just so many native flowers and native bee, the bee population on that site is, is really cool and it's very diverse. And we can talk about it later. We have a whole project with um, an organization called Bee Girl. We're part of 1% for the planet that Janie Brooks, actually talking about Brooks, yes. was something that she turned me on to, um, which is a wonderful organization. But through that organization, we got connected with this organization called Bee Girl. And we're actually working very hard at trying to create a more a bee-friendly um, vineyard because viticulture is pretty rough on, we're not talking honeybees, we're talking there's hundreds of native bee species in Oregon. And, and when you wipe out an entire site and put a vineyard in and have nothing else growing except for vines, you destroyed the natural habitat for all of the bees that were living there. And so what we're trying to do is figure out ways to create an ecosystem that is both 
great for growing grapes and great for all the things that were living there before you got there. Anyway, the Coastering site uh, for that first Pinot is that wild site with lots of flowers and lots of insects and and lots of wildness and lots of bobcats and other things running through the vineyard. Um, <laughs> but it's it's all it's all good. Technically, literally wild. Yeah. And if I remember right from going through my classes at Linfield, grapevines do not require bees to pollinate. They kind of are self-pollinated. That is absolutely correct. Right. Which is why a lot of vineyard managers would say, well, I care about the bees. Yeah. Um, because you don't need them for grapes. Grapes self-pollinate, which is absolutely 100% true. With that said... A lot of us in Oregon, we like to ferment our wines with native yeast, right? We like to use the yeast that come from the vineyard and are on the grapes when they get to the winery. Well, the yeast have to get from the site onto the grapes some way. And bees are one of the best ways of landing on an oak tree or landing on the soil and then landing on your cluster or any of the insects that might be flittering and fluttering through your vineyard. So they dust up the yeasts and then those end up, you know, starting your fermentations when they get to the winery. So if you've wiped out everything else on the site, except for the soil and the vine, I think it's a little harder to have the real true sense of that site come through. Plus, it's just really pretty to have lots of flowers and, and things growing on in your vineyard besides just vines. Oh, for sure. We, um, we did an episode in Idaho with Ron Bittner, so Bittner Vineyards, and he has a PhD in bees. And so really? it was really, really interesting listening to Ron talk about the bees and the, all the different species. And it's not the honeybees that you think of that are the biggest pollinators. It's these other little right. alfalfa bees or something like that. Do you remember? I don't remember. Um, but anyways, Bittner Vineyard. Listen to that episode because it's actually really interesting about the bees. So anyhow, moving on. So Wild in the coastal range, yeah. and then we move into Ribbon, Ribbon Ridge. Ridge. Yes. So Ribbon Ridge was, we were very fortunate that once we had bought the piece of land where we planted our first vineyard, this little hazelnut farm on Ribbon Ridge, which was nestled basically in between Beaufrere, Patricia Green, and Brick House at the time, came up on the market. And so we jumped at the opportunity to plant a vineyard there. And then it also just made sense that when we were able to build our own winery, that it made sense to build the winery there versus building it outside of our family home. And plus, there's just amazing neighbors on the ridge, but completely different site. So it was a hazelnut farm, which can be a little rough on the soil. It makes sense in terms of how you're growing hazelnuts, but that site wasn't quite as wild when we started. But it now, having not tilled and, and, and actually planting a lot of wildflowers ringing around the vineyard, that site gets more and more wild all the time, but it's a very different soil type. It's all these marine sediments. They dry very quickly. It's very sandy. And so the philosophy of dry farming is put to the test on that site and the philosophy of dry farming and not tilling. So now I'm not putting any water on the site. I've got all the native grasses and flowers growing, potentially taking away water and nutrients from my vines but it works. So it's uh, just philosophically the way we wanted to grow our fruit, but it creates completely different wines than what I get on the coast range. And I farm them the same way. I ferment them the same way. I age them the same way. But in the end, they give me very different wines. And I think one of the great things of making wine in the Willamette Valley is the soils are so different and the grapes that we grow here are so transparent as to the site they're planted on that we get to experience the Dundee Hills versus Ribbon Ridge versus Yamhill Carlton versus McMinnville versus Eola Amity 
And they're all great, but they're all different. And I think that's really exciting. I didn't really realize how different dirt could be on a wine. And we just experienced this a couple of weeks ago. I was at another winemaker's and it was his site. Same wine, same grapes, same everything. But because they were on different soil components in the vineyard, the wines were nowhere near the same. I mean, right. we're completely, completely a, definitely a picture perfect example of what terroir right. does to right. a wine. And so it's interesting and it's fun to be able to experience all these different levels. Now, do you have Riesling at both sites then? Yeah, all, all three sites. All three sites. Yeah, That's right. You have so, the Dundee site too. Yeah. And the Dundee site, it, again, I feel like I'm I'm bashing on Pinot Gris. When, when the, the first two sites, <laughs> it's, it's I, I okay. plant, I, they were land and I planted the vineyards myself. The third site, our Wickman Dundee, is actually owned by one of my best friends, Ann and Dave Wickman. And when they approached me about buying that site and would I farm it and, and make wine from it, I told them, I said, absolutely, it's wonderful. This is old vine Pinot Noir, but I don't, you know, vinify Pinot Gris. And there was, you know, several blocks of Pinot Gris on the site. So I said, I'll do it, but I, you have to let me graft over the Pinot Gris with Riesling. And they did. And it makes amazing Riesling. But yeah, I think that volcanic soil from there versus the sedimentary soil in Ribbon Ridge, Coast Range has kind of a mix of the two. But what's great about the Willamette Valley is we have great soil diversity. It's not one uniform soil in the Willamette Valley. And we just so happen to grow grapes here, Pinot Noir in particular, and Riesling that do a wonderful job of translating what's the soil into the wine. And you really can taste the difference between sedimentary soils and volcanic soils and low soils. And other varietals don't necessarily do that to the same degree. So I think we just got very lucky here in the Willamette Valley that the things that grow really well here, Pinot Noir, Riesling, Chardonnay, also do really well at depicting a sense of place and our places in the Willamette Valley tend to be really different because the soils are so different. So none of us plan that out. Maybe the pioneers knew that, but <laughs> I think the reality is as we got into it, we realized that, yeah, hey, Pinot Noir grows great here. And hey, there's a lot of different soils here. And so, yeah, we, um, we get a lot of diversity in the wines that are made here in the valley. This is maybe a stupid question, but, you know, with Pinot, there's several different clones. Chardonnay, there's several different clones. Is there several different clones with Riesling as well? Yeah. No one ever talks about the different clones. Right. Just, it kind of dawned on me. I'm like, that may be a dumb question. It could be one size fits all. I don't really know. It's actually not a dumb question at all because there are a whole lot of clones of Riesling, but there's only like one or two clones that have ever really been grown in the United States because that's not completely true. But in Oregon, it's whatever we brought in Riesling 9 and Riesling 12. They came That's in. That's boring. It Those is. Those are boring right. names. Uh, right. It's not right. like Versus Bainesville or, or Dijon 777 <laughs> yeah. or Pomar, right? Yeah. No, no. It's Riesling 9 and Riesling 12, which it's, is, yeah, there's yeah, no like creativity, it sounds like a dye no imagination. Color or right. So yeah. that could say that's a cancer causing <laughs> agent. Um, <laughs> but just like, you know, in the beginning, there was really just two clones of Pinot in Oregon. There was Pomar and Bainesville. And then visionaries started looking at, uh, well, there's got to be other things. And they brought in the Dijon clones and on and on and on. The same thing has recently happened with Riesling. And Harry Peterson Nedry from Shehalem, who is a visionary, legend. a legend, a visionary, and a wonderful human being, he started doing a test plot up at his Ribbon Ridge site, not too far from my winery site, where he was planting lots of different clones of Riesling. And fermenting them all individually so that he could see which clones of Riesling produced 
the wines he was most interested in making here in Oregon. And that's an ongoing trial. But going back to the collaboration of Oregon, I approached Harry. I said, Harry, would you mind if I took some budwood from your test plots and put it into my vineyard? And so he was super supportive. And so basically when he was pruning one year, we just went up and took, you know, a hundred cuttings of this clone and a hundred cuttings of this clone. And and we basically grafted all of those clones into our sites as well. Mm-hmm. So now, rather than just having two clones, I, all of our Riesling blocks have somewhere in the, the five to eight different clones of Riesling, which is closer to eight, which I think is great. That's a very good fun fact. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm all for fun facts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Harry's name comes up over and over and over again. And I've had Win on the show. And I'm just thinking, I love Wynn. And I'm just thinking I might need to have Wynn and her dad in here together because what a story that would be. Absolutely. Harry is emblematic of that whole pioneer group that was just amazingly uh, super smart and great on their own rights, but so collaborative with each other and creating so many of the things that we have that we all get to benefit from. We are standing on their shoulders or sitting on their shoulders because they're the ones that started it. And Harry's a, just a classic example of that. And especially for those of us that are passionate about Riesling, you know, he's the guy that really made it happen and uh, along with Brooks. And and so I, I owe them a, a, a huge debt of gratitude. I love it. Okay. With that, are we missing any wines? Are there any other wines that you're doing that we need to mention before I shift gears, uh, take a hard right. Yeah, we, we we actually make a lot of wine. So, well, I knew uh, you did that, but right? I'm- <laughs> no, so we, we do Chardonnay as well because we're. I was very fortunate for a number of years to have Jacques Lardier from Louis Jadot make his Oregon wine resonance. That for five years he made it at Trisadum, and so he was incredibly kind to help me make Chardonnay. Andrew Davis, who is the person Mr. that Mr. Sparkles, that, Mr. Sparkles. So we actually now do seven different sparkling wines. I have a hard time doing one of anything. So it's nine Rieslings and 10 Pinots and seven sparkling wines. So we do actually have a pretty sizable sparkling wine program. And thanks to Andrew. And so my entire winemaking career is built on other people being willing to answer my questions and help me. So then I should, I would be remiss not mentioning Josh Bergstrom because when I first started, I had a one acre vineyard in my backyard in Southern California. That was my winemaking expertise or experience, (laughs) which is just enough to make a mess of everything. And so Josh Bergstrom was an amazing person that I got to work with when I started here in Oregon and was just instrumental in my Pinot Noir and in even Riesling and Chardonnay winemaking. And then as Jacques, I mentioned, and then, yeah, Andrew, when it comes to making a sparkling wine is so important to so many of us here in the Willamette Valley. I also do, uh, I have a project in Walla Walla. So I became friends with Chris Viggins from Leonetti in Walla Walla, wonderful winemaker, wonderful winemaking family. And um, we started trading fruit back in 2013, where I would send him Pinot Noir from Ribbon Ridge, and he would send me Cabernet from Seven Hills and Merlot from his, his own home vineyard. And so we have a Bordeaux program called 18401 Cellars. And so all of my Bordeaux winemaking expertise comes from Chris Vigan. So I've just been very fortunate that I've had the opportunity to, to interact and work with so many great winemakers. But yeah, so that's the winemaking. That's okay. the And I should not call Andrew Mr. Sparkles, but you I can. Mean, he's, but, he's sparkles or <laughs> bubbles or whatever. You know, I, think I just think all good. I mean he's just the master of, he's great. of sparkling. And he right. is such a nice man. And he probably does not remember me because 
Well, I only met him once, but I spent several hours in his tasting room tasting this amazing um, wine that had been forgotten about. And I don't know even know how old it was, maybe 20 or 30 years old, something that had been aging. He let us try it after he had, you know, whatever. And it was just like, holy moly, this is amazing. Yeah. Uh, you'll never taste anything like it. Very hazelnutty, very, I right. mean, it was just, it was just yeah, that, such that a cool of experience. being entourage yes. on, on the dead yeast. And yep. I think they just transform those sparkling wines over time and they're phenomenal and they're yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So let's take that hard right I was talking about. And you have a new project with your daughter who went through Oregon State's fermentation school, correct? Uh, she or she to, just learned, was she, interested we, in fermentation. She and I went to the workshop on distilling and did the course with Oregon State. She actually went to the University of Oregon, so she would she would be disappointed if you said oh, that God, she went I'm to Oregon so State. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. That's, why, hey, my that's, da- a, that's an Oregon thing. Uh, it, so, it, it is, um, and my daughter goes to U of O, so I so, should know better yeah, than so, to, so, yeah, to call a duck a the, beaver. Went to the, yes. the U of O. So Tristatum is actually named after our, our Andrew and I's children, Tristan and Tatum. So Tristan, Tatum. And so the Tatum part, somewhere along the way, so she grew up with wine and was part of our harvests and those kind of things, and then went off to college. But then somewhere in college, she started to catch this distilling bug and this spirits bug, especially around gin. And so uh, she and I started doing some distillations and we together took the the course with Dr. Paul Hughes at Oregon State on the distilling program, which is wonderful. And um, in 2020, uh, we launched Bricksource Spirits, which is located, the distillery is in the same location as the winery. We started uh, distilling some wines from 2020 into brandy and into vodka. And then the vodkas, we then started distilling into gins that we used a lot of the botanicals that came from the vineyards. And then we started taking bourbon and rye and aging it in a variety of Pinot Noir and Cabernet and Riesling casks, because those are all things that that we have lots of. And so Bricksource Spirits was launched. And then last year, we launched to the public. So last summer, we opened up a tasting room at the winery, and uh, it's been a blast. It's been a lot of fun. It's so different than winemaking. Well, so winemaking, Mother Nature drives a lot of it, right? And you get one shot at it. Once a year, you got to wait all year long. You got to pick the grapes. Then you get, they make the wines. You get one shot at making the wines. Um, with distilling, you can distill any anytime you want. And so there's a lot more flexibility. You have a lot more control. In fact, distilling wants you to kind of be in control and, and winemaking wants you to kind of be hands off. The best wines in the world, you know, it's it's axiomatic that they make themselves, but they kind of do. If you're growing the fruit really well and you're, you know, being respectful in the process, you're not trying to manipulate those wines at all. When it comes to a gin or a whiskey, you are doing quite a manipulation. So it's kind of fun to flex some different muscles when it comes to uh, distilling spirits. You had said something when we were kind of before we even started about what gin is and literally standing there listening to you. And I have several questions that have come up since then in my brain, (laughs) but let's go back to what gin is. And where it originates from. Yeah, people sometimes are surprised to hear that gin is basically just vodka that has been distilled with some botanicals. So you basically make a gin by taking a neutral spirit, basically vodka, and you add some botanicals. They could be juniper. I mean, the one thing you have to have in a gin in the United States or anywhere is is juniper berry. How much you have is up to you. So it's going to have some juniper. 
But you can put anything, coriander, angelica root, uh, lemon peel, lavender, you know, rose petals. You can, anything you want. I mean, you said like cloves and bergamot. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what else you said, but I'm like cranberries. I'm like, this is sounding delicious. Yeah. So what to me, you, a gin is a drinkable sagebrush. Yeah. If it's got yeah. too much juniper. So juniper is really effective at covering up spirit that doesn't smell or taste very good. So, you know, 200 years ago when gin was really becoming popular, it's because the base vodka were, were so horrible. <laughs> they were impossible to drink because they smelled horrible. They tasted horrible. And so what distillers would do is they'd put a lot of juniper because it was really aromatic and flavorful into their spirit and make it drinkable because people would just taste the juniper. And that became popular. But nowadays, our distillations are much cleaner and much better. And so you don't really have to use much juniper at all. You know, we have a gin called Florette, which is all fruit and floral. It has a lot of fresh fruits, and peaches and nectarines and you know, fresh oranges, and then it's got floral, it's got violets, and it's got lavender and chamomile. And that's what gin is. You get to, and it's really fun. When you make a winemaker, you do have one ingredient. It's grapes, right? And all those flavors you get out of wine are still coming from those grapes, which is amazing. As a distiller, you get to decide what the recipe is. You get to decide how much lavender you want to put in there versus clove versus peppercorn versus whatever. We actually have distilled over 85 different botanicals at the distillery just to learn what the difference between limes and key limes and lime peel and lime leaf. They're all lime, but they're all different. It's a lot of fun. And then we take those individual distillations and then start to figure out what we want to actually do in our gin. So yeah, gin is just vodka with some botanicals that then gets distilled and the distillation process basically liberates the essential oils out of those botanicals and, and puts it inside the inside the liquid. So, yeah, that's what gin is. You do have me excited to try some gin now okay. because the juniper thing just isn't necessarily my cup of tea, so to speak. But so here's a, another stupid Heidi question. So is flavored vodka, since vodka is the base of gin, yeah. is it just flavors added after the yes. fact? not actually distilled into. So that's where the differentiation if between they the distilled two are. It, yeah, there's two differentiate. If they distilled it into the vodka, then it could be a gin as long as there was some juniper in there. If they just want, this is going to be a strawberry flavored vodka and they only want strawberry, then, then it wouldn't be a gin. It's too timely and difficult to do the distillation. You might as well just add the flavor later. So flavored vodkas, almost all of them are just vodka and some... It could be a natural flavoring, but something has then being added, added afterwards, okay, that makes, right? That makes Where a lot a of sense. gin has to be distilled the, with the botanical and the vodka together to make the gin. Okay, there we go. I did tell you, though, because, again, I was up there a couple of weeks ago. We were kind of talking about this, and we were talking about the name. And then, you know, it hadn't really dawned on me that my grandfather had burnt his house down because <laughs> he let his, well, his still blew up. And this was in the 1920s. This was Prohibition, so... I'm sure he was in much more trouble for brewing hooch than he was burning his house down. But I'm like, I'm like, okay, that's okay. Stories are coming back around. I'm remembering things. And my mom's probably going to call and tell me, you know, not to spill family dirt on the air, but you know what? It's, 
It's a colorful story. It's a great. It's a great it's, story. It's a great story. Right? This is why insurance not... companies are a little bit worried about distilleries. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so... Maybe it wasn't a great story at the time. It's a great story now. <laughs> yes, it's a great um, story now. And right. Yes, it's it's just I'm really sorry he burned his house down, but right. you know we are still talking about it a hundred years later. There, so... but there are definitely things as a distiller that you have to. You're heating up the alcohol, and so there is some risk where winemaking. There's still risk in winemaking, but it's not the same um, as something blowing up. That's the thing that having a little bit of uh, technical knowledge and expertise before you uh, you go into uh, some type of distillation production makes a lot of sense because you are dealing with alcoholic vapors and pressurized systems. And so, yeah, hopefully we won't follow in your grandfather's footsteps <laughs> and blow up the distillery. Let's let's not do that. It's, yeah. it's way too beautiful in that basement of your winery <laughs> right, right, to right. blow anything up down there. I want to shift over to the whiskey and the bourbon really quick because I'm not a fan of that. Typically, celebrated my divorce way too hard years ago, so I just have not gone back to it. So shame on me. And usually the smell of the bourbon or the whiskey cuts me off before I even get it close to my face. But I was brave. I took the cap off. I did smell it. First thing I smelled was those Pinot barrels. I mean, it was just, it was instantly I could smell that oak and the wine and whatever. And it smells really actually quite lovely. Like I'm going to try that tonight. My husband's going to be so excited. You're going to be his new best friend if I like this. (laughs) But is there characteristics and flavors that are coming out of that oak and that pinot and that cab that's making that bourbon and that whiskey but different? A lot of traditional whiskeys would not have been aged in anything but an oak barrel. But 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, folks started finishing whiskeys after they spent their first part of their life. Usually it's two or three or five years in a charred oak barrel. Heavy chart. Heavy chart. Yes. Very different than a wine barrel, which it is- looks v- like crocodile skin kind of really chart. Yeah, yeah, it's full on chart. Yep. And that was original whiskeys. And then people start saying, hey, you know, if we take that whiskey and for the final six months before we bottle it, we put it into a used cask that had rum in it or sherry in it or- something else, it can just add a subtle nuance. And and that so that became very popular. And that's very much what what we have at Trisatum is a whole bunch of Pinot Noir casks and Riesling casks and Cabernet Sauvignon casks. But the difference for us a little bit is that we have them completely full of wine up until the minute before we put the whiskey in. So distillers in Scotland will use sherry casks, but the casks get emptied and then they get put on a boat and sent to Scotland. And so by the time they get there, they've been emptied for maybe six or nine months. And and that they still have an impact, but I think the ability to empty a wine cask, rinse it out, and then within five minutes, the whiskey's going into that cask, hmm. it's fresh. And I think it just has a bigger impact on the whiskey, potentially. So that's what we've seen. We've especially on the fruit side. So I think one of the things you mentioned right away was, oh, it smells like Pinot Noir. I think that red-fruited character, you know, it's still full whiskey, bourbon. We do a rye as well. But it's fascinating to see after aging it for 12 months, we do a double aging where it, it spends six months in one Pinot Noir cask, and then we rack it into another freshly emptied Pinot Noir cask. So it spends another six months. And we do that with Cabernet and we do that with Riesling. And- at first I thought, you know what, whiskey is whiskey. It's not, it's so powerful in itself. It's not going to pick up subtle difference between Pinot Noir or Cabernet, completely different. So huh. Pinot Noir, very red-fruited notes to the whiskey. Um, Cabernet, very dark and more 
hedonistic characteristics where the Riesling casks that we use bring this this tropical, this very bright fruit character to the whiskeys that we don't see in in the core spirit until it goes into those wine casks. Crazy. I'll have to come up because you do do tastings for both the spirits and the wine. Right. Usually not at the same time because it just doesn't blend very good. Yeah, Yeah. that's a really, yeah, we uh, technically could but we don't because going from a Pinot to a whiskey or a Chardonnay to a gin, that's not- Complimentary. They're not, no, neither of them are going to taste very good. So we do tastings of both, but um, we separate the tastings. So we do all of our spirits tastings in our vineyard cottage, which is a little cottage that's right next to the winery that we've kind of turned it into a speakeasy. And so it's a fun place to taste. If you're uh, it's clear spirits, we have vodka and gin. If you're a brown spirits, we've got bourbon and rye. Love it, love it, love it, love it. Okay. You are an artiste. You are actually a very accomplished artist. And I know you're shy is not the right word, but you're very humble about, you know, your paintings and what they are. And I want you to explain them because they are very much part of the vineyard and very much part of your winery. Yeah. So art was the first of all the things that I do that I'm not an expert at any of them, or I didn't go to school for any of them. I didn't go to school for art either. Um, But that was the thing I started with going all the way back to school. You know, I did not come from means, so I was going to have to pay my way through college. And one of the ways I did it was working as a a photographer, as a photojournalist. And I just was fortunate enough to be okay at photography and I love sports. And so I got to do that. And so that started the whole creative artistic part. But um, once I started kind of my business career, I dropped the photography. And after about a year, I needed something creative to do. And so uh, Andrea was very supportive and she's like, yeah, start painting. And so she let me kind of turn our patio into a studio and I started painting and just fell in love with it, just like I fell in love with wine. And so, but as a photographer, your job, especially as a photojournalist, depict reality. Back then it was all black and white. I worked for mostly for newspapers. So it was black and white photography and my job was to depict what was going on. So when I painted, I didn't want to do anything that was realism because it would never be as good as my photography. And if I tried to paint a flower, I should photograph it. It'd be better. And so I started painting just very abstract with lots of color, lots of texture. Because in photography, I can't put any texture on the painting. And I wanted to be able to put big globs of paint. Now I put Pinot Noir skins and vineyard soils in the artwork. Barbed wire. Um, and so that's the benefit of, of <laughs> yeah, benefit of not going to art schools. No one said I couldn't do that. And then, yeah, so abstraction and then big canvases. I like to be real, I'm a very physical painter. And so, yeah, it's become a big part of just who the winery is. I get to spend, you know, usually about four months out of the year away from the winery in the studio painting. And so we have a big gallery there. And so it keeps me probably, it benefits my organization more because I'm not always there. And so they get a break from me. That's probably the bigger benefit. The secondary benefit is that I get a break too, and and I get to just disappear and and put on good music and paint. So uh, yeah, it's it's great. Well, I think that segues really nicely into where we find all of this goodness, greatness, and well, art. Um, whether it's on a canvas or in a bottle, or I can't wait to see the speakeasy. We did not go out there because it was it was I think it was raining sideways that day. Um, so tell us kind of you know socials, actually like physically where people can find you buy the wine, all that good stuff. So our winery is on Ribbon Ridge, right in the middle of Ribbon Ridge, which is a great place to spend a day wine tasting because you've got Eminent Domain and Domain Divio and Brick House and Beaufrere and Patty Green and just loads of wonderful places to uh, to visit and to taste. 
Um, and our gallery is there. So we have a full gallery, but we're open them seven days a week, 11 to four every single day. We'll do spirits tasting seven days a week, but our cottage, our speakeasy is open right now on Saturdays and Sundays in May. We'll probably go to being open on Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays. All of it's by appointment. We do have walk-ins when we can handle them, but the best way is to make an appointment. We're on both open table and talk. And then the winery, tresatum.com is our website. So people can order wines that way. Uh, Bricksor is bricksor.com, Bricksor Spirits. Let's um, spell both of those yeah. because neither of them are normal English words. No, they're both made up words. <laughs> so that's that's why. But they're easy to trademark when you make up a word. That's true. Um, so Trisatum is T-R-I-S-A-E-T-U-M. And Brixor is B-R-I-X-E-U-R. So both of those are with .com are the, are the websites. Perfect. Okay, back to the celebrity. You've had 30 oh, minutes to come up with man. the celebrity. You thought I'd forget, didn't you? Yeah. Like, mine like an elephant. Stubbornness of an ass. So there you go. Who would I want to... Um, Dead or alive? Oh, this. So you could totally take Picasso, a little bit of Monet. Oh, those are great. Those are both outstanding. Yeah. Uh, so then probably Jackson Pollock. Okay. That's we'll a, if I'm allowed to have a, a yeah. A dead guy. Right. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> just a visionary, right? Yeah. I mean, let's put the canvas on the floor and let's drip paint on it. And, and he made some, um, there's so much energy and life in his works. And he was, he was mercurial, and I think he'd be a, a fascinating person. So, yes, it would be great. To, I don't know if he'd want to hang out there a long time with me, but maybe if he was just there for a couple of days, we'd have some, I think the whiskey would probably be the more appropriate drink for Jackson <laughs> yeah, Pollock. Well, you know, you um, came off the I island could, I could after I try the, the dry racing with him, yeah. but, but that's, yeah. <laughs> well, once the whiskey's gone, his boat arrives, he's right. gone. We're all good. And then you're back to Riesling, and we okay. can get you like a Wilson or something like that to keep <laughs> you company. <laughs> yeah. Terrific. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you, James, so much for joining us and dealing with my antics and stupid questions and sharing all of the lovely goodness that you brought with us. Well, it's been a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for inviting me. I've listened to the podcast, so it's fun to be a part of it. So thank you for having me. Well, thank you for listening. That's even more exciting. It makes my heart so happy. So. Thank you, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Wine Crush Podcast. It is such a big passion project for us for so many different reasons. And there are so many people involved that we want to say thank you to. First, before I say thank you to anybody, please make sure that you go and subscribe, follow, leave a review, and share all of our wine goodness with all of your friends. And as always, huge thank you to Daniel with South of Autumn Production. Shay, my lovely Vanna assistant that does, she's just my right-hand man. So, you know, she's she's a little bit of everything for me. And uh, Dustin, of course, with Biscuit and Pickles. Without him, we would starve. So again, thank you, everybody. Thank you, James. And we cannot wait for the next episode to hit the waves. 